Welcome to another PI World podcast. This is an audio-only version offered as another way to enjoy our great content. A full video version can be seen on piworld.co.uk, where you can find many more videos of interest to investors. Welcome, everybody, to the Cerulean Interim Results presentation. First of all, I'd like to introduce ourselves. So I'm Louis Hall. I've met some of you before, but I found the Cerulean back in 1999 as an MBO from what was then a company called Logica, which was quite a large UK software house at the time. And uh, we, we, um, we essentially MBO the, the telecoms products part of Logica and went on to raise productivity funding, build a, rebuild a product set, build a customer base, and so on up until 2016 when we completed an IPO. And the, the, the purpose of the IPO was to exit the product investors who've been investors since 2001 and 2000 and to create a platform that enabled us as a management founders to, to, to carry on and, and do more. And also we could see that as we were winning deals with larger customers uh, and, and much bigger contracts in the, in the in pipelines, that we, the, the, uh, the, the transparency and the, the, the profile that would be created by being a public company will be helpful. We're also keen to again uh, do uh, at least explore inorganic growth through M&A and so on. And again, being a public company was a way to enable us to do that more easily and more flexibly than, than remaining as part of a private equity-backed business. So that that's a brief introduction to me. And um, now, a quick ha a hand over to Andrew. He'll introduce himself, having joined us only recently in February. Good afternoon, everybody. So I started my accounting training um, at Deloitte. Um, I was there for seven years in total before moving into industry. I first joined the FTSE 100 company Smiths Group, uh, where I spent a couple of years in a head office finance uh, role. Um, I then joined Vitec, where I was for seven years in total, uh, doing five different roles over that period. Uh, this included spending a year working out in California as finance director um, of a subsidiary business over there. Um, my final role at Vitec was as Group Director of Finance, um, and then I joined Cerulean back in February and thoroughly enjoying it so far. Thank you, Andrew. So, for those of you who don't know an awful lot about Cerulean, I will give you a, a brief overview of what we do, how we do it. So, we're a software product business, so we provide enterprise software to telcos, all around the world, focused in an area that's called variously CRM and billing or BSS and OSS. But essentially, it's the bulk of the enterprise software that telcos need to have to be in business. And this is sold as a, a set of product modules. Each of these boxes in this diagram represents a discrete product module addressing various different areas. They're the main areas of functionality, as I said, telcos need to have to be in business. So. It's everything from defining the products that telcos are going to sell in an enterprise product catalog. And this, this enables telcos to create sophisticated bundles of what we call triple play and quad play products. So, for example, where you can buy a bundle for whatever monthly fee that would potentially include your internet connection, mobile telephones, fixed wire to the home, plus TV packages. And that could also be done in a business environment where the complexity would be much greater and 
well, there'll be many, many more options of ways to build those products. So having sophisticated product catalog is key to that. That's obviously then connected to the various channels that allow those products to be sold through CRM, through online self-service where customers buy products online themselves and through mobile apps and dealer portals and so on. So a lot of emphasis on getting products to market. And then there's sophisticated functionality that enables all of those services to be connected to the network elements that deliver those services. So that's essentially what we used to call telephone exchanges and all their various forms today through mobile, broadband, fixed wire, TV, and so on. And in a typical quad play package, we might be talking to a dozen different network elements or effectively network computers, all with different interfaces, different protocols, and all having to do things in different orders. So that's a very sophisticated set of things to have to manage. We're then in real time monitoring usage of those services, managing customer balances, whatever those balances are for, ensuring that when they exceed their balances that the right overage charges are applied. If we're talking about prepaid mobile, then in real time we're authorizing whether calls can be connected. So this is software that's right at the core of telco operations. Without the software working, their customers don't get to make calls. And then obviously we collate all of this charging information and periodic charging information, put that onto bills. We then manage accounts, receivables, collections, payments, and so on. And then without going into lots more detail, there are other modules that cover other parts of this picture. But you know, essentially, consider our software as the software that manages the whole customer lifecycle all the way through cradle to grave. And what we're doing is presenting this to the market as a product solution. So we are the product solution in a market that has traditionally been dominated by much more bespoke solutions that involve a lot more services efforts to deliver, um, where different customers have different versions of the software. Uh, We're very clear that all of our customers have the same software. Uh, All of our software um, is is maintained in the kernel environment where it's upgraded at the same time. So we're very focused on on offering a product as the box solution uh, where, where, where customers don't have to pay for code changes uh, yes, you can configure our software in all sorts of wonderful ways, but you don't change the code. And that has a big a big impact in terms of not just uh, total cost of ownership, which obviously is significantly lower, but also in terms of risk involved in delivering these projects so they actually go live and, and, and deliver results. And of course, the time it takes to get to them live, what we call time to market. So those are very important factors in, in, in um, the telco world. So... In terms of how we deploy this software, how we sell this software, the revenue generation model, we're essentially offering it in the first instance as a, as a SaaS service. So customers buy this as a service through a, typically a term SaaS deal, typically five-year contracts to provide the service for that period. And that will typically involve an implementation project to put the software into use. And depending on the scale of the engagement, the size of customer and so on, that a number of thousands of man days of services efforts. So even though we're not changing software, we are doing a lot of configuration work. We're doing a lot of workshops to understand the precise customer requirements. So how, what kind of products are we building? What's the sales process? What's the workflow to deliver those services, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that is a, a sophisticated set of challenges. Um, and then within that, there is a, a term license fee as part of the SaaS fee. And obviously, we cover the support and maintenance costs that we have, plus also revenue from hosting and managing and operating the solution. So all of that, in our preference, is wrapped up as a, as a SaaS deal. 
sometimes telcos want to have their own version of the software, not, not, not a separate software version, but the software running on their own hardware, so their own implementation on their own site. And that can often be driven by regulatory requirements of different nationalities, different different geographies, different territories. Um, so we are able to deploy that on-premise, so we can deploy it on customers' own hardware in their own data centers, or we can deploy it on, our, on hardware we own in their data center, so it's physically located in their data centers, but we're still providing this as a, as a SaaS solution. So there are all kinds of different models that we can use to support the, the deployment. Um, but essentially, we're, we're, we're um, earning revenues from a software license, so, so this is a recurring license fee uh, based on five-year term agreements normally. Maintenance and support, again, that's a recurring annual fee. Also, hosting and maintenance um, service fees, again, recurring fees. So that's that's the fundamental business model um, that we're delivering to. So as I said earlier, we do service the global market. Typically, around half our business is normally based in Europe, so half our revenue comes out of the European market. And the, the other half comes typically from a mix of Asia Pacific and the Americas. Our customers are with us for a long time. These are sticky relationships. It's very hard to replace these solutions, uh, typically from deciding to replace a CRM and billing solution, you need to allow at least three years from making a decision to having something up in service, uh, up and running to replace to replace another solution. So these are uh, big undertakings. And if a telco was to go with a more bespoke solution, that would be more like four or five years than three years. So once we have these customers on board, it's hard to lose them. It doesn't mean, of course, we don't work very hard to provide the best possible customer service, but you know, these are sticky relationships. So another feature of our business is that we have a very broad range of different types of customers, so different types of telcos. There's a lot of, lot, lot of different types of telcos, uh, everything from the household name national operators like three, for example, in the UK, KDDI in Japan, Proximus in Belgium, and so on, to some more alternative types of telcos. So, for example, Norlis here, probably mostly when I've heard of Norlis, but they're the second biggest power generator in Denmark but also the second biggest provider of TV and internet services. So this is a energy business that is utilizing its cable network to overlay fiber to provide national broadband service in, in Denmark. And so that's an example of a different kind of telco. We also support some other utilities, so power, water, gas, but really only with one of our modules, the network inventory module, which manages where plant is um, in the ground or in the case of mobile in the air. But whether it's water pipes or gas pipes or electricity cables, it's the same essential modeling tool that we use for all of those different different uh, verticals. So, so what are the market drivers? What is it that is driving our business forward in, in terms of the growth that we're achieving at the moment? I think really there are three main types of forces at play here. So telcos are going through a huge phase of investment in building up more broadband infrastructure. So whether that's fiber optic cables, fiber to the home, or whether it's 5G mobile, it's all about increasing broadband capacity. Having done that, of course, then telcos have got to work out how they, how they monetize those investments and, and get a return. Um, and it, you know, it really isn't, isn't going to work in their markets to simply say that if you've got another 100 gigabits of broad, 100 megabits of, of broadband, that it's an extra you know, 75 pounds a month. It, it, it just isn't the way that that works. So 
what telco is looking to do is to find new ways to bundle things, new ways to 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 charge the same things that 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 um, can generate more revenue, and building more products on to to achieve that. So so that that um, is a key driver in in digital transformation. So um, a lot of telcos will will look at their existing uh, software stack, enterprise software stack, realize that actually to introduce a new product might take months and months, and they need to be able to introduce new products overnight almost. So again, you look for a more up-to-date um, CRM and billing solution to enable you to do that, which had all of the bits integrated together so that when you change product catalog, automatically those products are available in CRM, in sales, in, in online sales channels, and um, are, are also able to be deployed on a network immediately as well. So that, that's really important. Um, operational efficiency obviously is a, is a driver. So a lot of digital transformation projects, which are our business, are part of consolidating solutions where a telco may have four or five different billing platforms. And if they can consolidate those onto a single platform, there's some big cost savings because you're supporting one platform, paying for licenses of one platform, not for four or five. And also the technology itself, you know, of itself drives change quite often. So for most telcos probably don't need to do an upgrade or, or buy a new solution to support 5G, but, but there are some that, 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 that don't have systems that can support 5G. So, and that's just one example of a, a technology change. Um, there are new network interfaces appearing all the time, new types of services that, that some solutions will not have the capability to, to, to address. Especially where a telco is on a heavily bespoke solution that's very hard to upgrade, even if the product vendor has a new version that supports that new new technology, the, the upgrade may be harder than just replacing it with a new a new system. So, so that, that also creates opportunity in our market. Moving on to how we address the market and how does the market break down. So essentially we look at telcos as what we call tier one, tier two, and tier three. So for the tier threes, we tend not to, to do much work with the tier threes because of the budget constraints they have. Um, but certainly with the tier ones and, and the, the tier twos, we tend to support all of the services of those telcos, and all of our modules. If you look at the tier ones, so these are the larger telcos in the world. So examples for us, so for example, um, Proximus in Belgium, we tend to provide point solutions. So in Belgium, we support the main consumer challenger brand for Proximus. We don't do all of their, all of their telco um, billing for all of Belgium, uh, Holland, and, and Luxembourg, and so on. So, but that, 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 that's, that's a way in for us to, to a larger group. So depending on the, the type of telco, the scale of the telco, we have a different approach um, to those markets. We also work through channel partners. So, so we have a partnership with Nokia, who sell our, our billing solution, and also with, with GE, who sell our network inventory solutions that's based on the digital mapping tool that GE provide. Competition, well, we have competition, but I think um, reality is that there are not many vendors who can offer on a product basis the kind of solution, the breadth and depth of solution that we have. And this, this competition breaks that down into three distinct groups. So first of all, we have the large independent software vendors or ISVs as we call them. Those are big beasts like Oracle, for example. They tend to have to work from framework solutions, but will then do a lot of bespoking of that solution to meet an individual telco's needs. And we win against that proposition on the basis of having a product solution that's more flexible, more scalable, that can get to market quicker, and it's more cost effective. So that, that's the, the, the main kind of differentiation you like with, the, with those large ISVs. 
And then we have the equipment vendors, so or network equipment vendors. So this is basically Ericsson and Nokia in the in in the west, um, and ZTE and Huawei in in the east in China. So ZTE and Huawei, the Chinese vendors, have retrenched out of our main European and North American markets. Um, so you know we're not we we don't have that competition in those markets which has helped us uh, quite significantly. And there's no sign that that's going to return anytime soon. We do compete with ZTE Huawei in Asia Pacific and um, in the developing world, although we don't do a lot of business in emerging markets and try to stay clear of that to a large extent. And then we have Nokia, of course, Nokia are a partner on a competitor, so we don't compete against Nokia. And that really just leaves you know, Ericsson as the, as the main competitor in the equipment vendor space. Um, and then there are some smaller independent software vendors of a similar order of magnitude of scale to us, although most of them are still bigger than us. And um, they, they, but they tend to be regionally focused. They tend to be focused on either a region or perhaps on a particular type of telco. So they tend not to have the same breadth of customer base to to reference and, and so on and so on. So those are the main the, the main groups of competitors. Um, we're also supported by the analysts so market analysts like Gartner for example um, who do um, we spend a lot of time with uh, and who, who do uh, write favorably about Cerulean often telcos will go to Gartner to ask who to put on their list to send their, their request for proposals to and they're looking at doing transformation projects and the fact that we're in the Gartner magic quadrant and uh, well regarded by Gartner does help us enormously as is also true to, to, to a large extent with the other main telco analysts. So that's what Cerulean does, where markets are in, how we approach the market competition. The next few slides are about what we've achieved in the six months to March 31st, 2022. Our financial year runs 1st October to end of September. And I think what the important number one point about Cerulean recently is that this is a business that was growing at around 9 or 10% a year for years, uh, certainly since IPO. And in the last sort of three half years, I've seen a transition to growth of 20% plus. So we grew 25% in financial 21, the last financial year. And we're very pleased to see that that trend has carried on through into the first half of 22, where we've grown by 26% over the period. Also, we're very pleased that most of these key KPIs have hit records. So EBITDA was up by 50% in the six months to, to March, and PBT was up 66%. So we're very, very pleased about that. Uh, also, strong performance on cash, which Andrew will speak about shortly. And in addition to this, uh, sort of as a backdrop, what we are, the other trend that we're seeing that is largely responsible for driving this growth is the size of contract we're signing and the, and the size of customer we're signing these contracts with it, uh, are both growing. So you can see from the chart on the right hand side of this slide that since IPO in 2016, when a two to three million pounds or million dollar contract would have been a good result in our book. Um, now in 21, we, we, we're seeing deals that are as big as 18 million dollars. And you know, we, we see that trend continuing that we will keep carry on growing the scale of the deals we're doing. These newer, larger deals are, 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 are <coughs> very virtuous for all kinds of reasons, but not just are they bigger deals, they also have tend to have a higher license uh, uh, the software content because larger customers tend to have larger customer bases themselves so if the telco has two million mobile users mobile customers um, we earn two million times x a quarter if they have one million we earn one million times x so 
the, the, the share of the deal tends to be more license weighted as these deals get bigger because you don't need the same, you don't need double the amount of services to support a customer base that's double the size um, in terms of delivering um, the project, but also ongoing uh, operation and management of the solution under SaaS. So, so that's all positive. Also, these customers have much larger budgets to spend and much broader and deeper requirements. So that gives us more upsell opportunity down the track so that for years to come, this goes on being a very um, lucrative relationship for us in, in, typically. So on, on the sales front, we had strong sales to existing customers. So, so sales to existing customers were up 12%. So 10.9 million and a half. I just want to draw your attention to um, a couple of things on the next slide. So if you look at the new orders chart, which is the second row down, left-hand side of the middle row down, our new orders in total for the half dropped from a high of 23.6 million at the same point in the previous year to 10.9 million. And that's because in the first half of 21, we had that large $80 million new customer order in Latin America drop into that half. In fact, in the whole of 21, our total new orders was 33 million. So we had a heavy weighting towards the first half. I think what we're seeing in the first half of 22 is that that weighting will be reversed. So we've had strong sales resisting customers in the half. We haven't closed a new customer order in the half. And really that's just, a, I think, a timing point. The top left-hand corner of this slide, the, the chart in the top left-hand corner, this is our prospective customer or new customer unweighted pipeline. And what we see here is a, a, a jump of 31% in that pipeline value. And that bulge, that big jump in, in value in the first half, we expect to squeeze out into, into the second half, um, at least to some extent. And our expectation is if we go back to the, the KPIs, that this uh, total new orders for 22 uh, has every chance of being at least as strong as it was for the financial year last year and a good chance of being ahead of that, especially as you consider that we will do more sales to existing customers in the half. So you can see that that could be quite a significant number still. Just on that, the other KPI that we would normally see steeper growth in across the financial year, across a whole annual period, is the recurring revenue. That's, that only grew by 9%. We'd, again, we'd expect by year-end this growth rate to be consistent with previous years where we've seen growth of 20% plus. Also on the back order, what we call our back order, so that's the value of total value of contracts signed, not, not yet with revenue not yet recognized. So we've got a revenue still to recognize on contracts we've signed, but, we're, but we're, we just haven't recognized the revenue yet. And just a very quick point on revenue recognition. So probably some of the people wondering how we do that. So essentially with services that we're delivering a new solution, we would recognize the revenue on a project completion basis. So as we deliver the services, um, we estimate each month how far we are to the end of the project, or how, 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 how complete it is, and recognize revenue as a percentage on that basis. Uh, so license revenue we recognize when we install when we install the software. So that, that has to be taken per IFRS 15, uh, whatever length of license term uh, at that point. And then the, 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 the SaaS revenue, the SaaS wrapper, the, the managed services, operations, hosting, and so on. We recognize those revenues as we deliver those services. So that, that's, that's basically our, our revenue recognition policy. So, uh, but the important the point here is that our back order, although it's declined slightly, it's only declined very slightly from uh, the same point last year, and we had this, uh, this record 
to new orders total. So we still have a lot of backlog uh, to burn in the tank to enable us to be very confident about the outturn for financial 22 for the second half. Um, right, okay, I'm now going to hand over to Andrew, who's going to take us through a bit more detail on the, on the, on the financial side. Andrew, over to you. Thank you very much, Louis. So as Louis has said, the results for the first half were very strong, with revenue up 26% to £16.1 million, adjusted EBITDA up 50% to £7.2 million, and a significant increase in net cash to £16.5 million. In terms of what really drove the increase in revenue over the period, as you can see from the table, this was really driven by higher services revenue due to the implementation of major projects. You can see there was a slight decline in software revenue from £5.8 million down to £5 million in the half. And this was really due to the timing of license revenue recognition under IFRS 15. Over the medium term, as Louis has said, as we continue taking on larger customers, we would expect the proportion of revenue from software to increase. So the reduction in this half is really just due to timing. Now, given that software revenue typically has a higher gross margin because it drops all the way through to profit, you, you might have expected there to have been a reduction in the gross margin versus the first half last year. What actually happened was the gross margin was maintained at 78.5%, which was broadly in line with the prior period. And this is because we really focused our recruiting efforts on recruiting additional people in India and in the new office in Sofia, Bulgaria, in order to reduce overall headcount costs. So because average cost per head in these regions is significantly cheaper than in the UK, as a result of recruiting more heavily in these areas, the average cost per head actually reduced period on period, and this offset the impact from the change in the revenue mix. Turning to the EBITDA margin, this increased to 45% in the period, and this was really driven by a strong focus on cost control. So although revenue grew strongly, we continued to focus our costs very closely in the first half of the year. Finally, on this slide, Cerulean has a history of good cash performance, and this continued in the first half with a closing net cash of £16.5 million. Uh, this enabled us to declare a dividend of 2.6 pence, which was up 24% from the prior period. The next slide looks at cash generation in a bit more detail. Um, the table at the top shows a reconciliation of adjusted EBITDA down to free cash flow. So you can see there was a favourable impact from working capital in the first half with an inflow of £0.7 million. This was really due to the timing of payments from customers as well as the timings of invoices raised during the period. As we continue to grow, we wouldn't expect there to be um, a favourable movement in working capital every period. And indeed, in the second half of the year, we probably expect this to reverse the other way as we continue to grow. In terms of capitalisation of development costs and purchase of PPE, these balances were broadly in line with last year, but there was a, an increase in net interest and tax paid from £0.3 million up to £1.4 million in the period. And this was driven by higher tax payments due to the higher profit that we have made over the past year or so. So putting all this together, the free cash flow came to £5.9 million versus £2.1 million 
in the prior period. So the table at the bottom shows a reconciliation of closing net cash at the end of FY21 of £13.2 million to closing net cash at the end of the period of £16.5 million. So you can see that the free cash flow of £5.9 million easily afforded dividends of £1.5 million, net employee incentive shares of £0.7 million and lease payments of £0.4 million. So the next slide shows the income statement in a bit more detail. I've already covered the key points on the income statement, but there's really just three additional points I would like to mention. First of all is that we continue to invest in R&D. So over the full year, we expect to invest around 10,000 days work. In the first half, we capitalised 0.5 million of costs, which was approximately equal to the amortisation charge. So overall, there was no net accounting benefit from capitalisation of development costs. Over the first half, we spent more than 0.5 million pounds overall, but the 0.5 million pounds was just the amount that we capitalised as required to do so under IAS 38. Secondly, on this slide, you can see depreciation and amortisation balance of 1.5 million pounds. This includes half a million pounds amortisation of acquired intangibles. This stems from the IPO and will be fully amortised by March 2023. So clearly from that period onwards, this charge will be significantly lower. Finally, as anticipated, there was an increase in the effective tax rate from 12.9% up to 14.2% during the period. This was driven by the significant increase in profit, as well as no further benefit from brought forward losses, which were fully utilised in the prior year. Now turning to the consolidated balance sheet. The key point on this slide is that the balance sheet remains very strong. You can see net cash of £16.5 million, no debt on the balance sheet as this was fully repaid last year and overall there was an increase in net assets of 34% versus the prior period. Looking at some of the detailed balances from the top, the £3 million in intangible assets balance is broken down between £2 million of capitalised R&D and £1 million of acquired intangibles. The decrease from £4 million in the prior year is due to a million pounds of amortisation of acquired intangibles, as I discussed on the previous slide. The right of use assets and liabilities relate to accounting for leases under IFRS 16. And finally, you can see that we continue to control working capital in order to maximise cash performance. And indeed, there are no bad debts in either the current period or the prior period. So the final slide here shows the consolidated cash flow statement, reconciling down to the closing cash balance of £16.5 million. Overall, the key points here have been covered off on the previous slides, so I, I don't really have anything further to add here, um, but happy to answer any questions that you may have at the end of the session. Back to you, Louis. Thank you, Andrew. So, um, appreciate you borrowing on a little bit. So, a quick summary, and then we'll open the floor to questions. I think. Um, so, so as I mentioned earlier on, we we do have a strong back order book still, and that that gives us a lot of visibility of forward revenues, uh, particularly through to the end of uh, FY22, but also looking forward into 23. Um, and the fact that we've got a a, a much larger pipeline 
of new customer prospects obviously gives a, a lot of additional confidence about the future. As Andrew mentioned, a lot of time at the moment is going into into finding different ways to increase our talent base, both in the in the traditional bases in UK and India, where, where we've had offices for a long time, but also at the new centre in Bulgaria, also at satellite locations in India. So we've established bridgeheads in, in Indore, in the north, and in Ahmedabad and Gujarat over the last six months to, to just to find new, perhaps less overheated um, cities where we can employ good people. And we'll also continue to look at other potential international locations to establish bases. So there's a lot of work going into managing the overheating and the global technology people markets and the inflationary pressures there. As Andrew's uh, pointed out, we, we have a very strong position financially, uh, strong cash flows, and we continue to grow recurring revenue. So I think all in all, we're, we're very well placed for 22. And uh, I think we're also well placed for going to 23 uh, to achieve to achieve the, uh, the, the the market forecasts, but also um, to continue this big uptick in momentum that we've experienced over the last year and a half. So um, without further ado, hand to Tams in to uh, take questions. We've got a question here, which is, what are the main drivers of investment in the telecom sector? Well, the, the main drivers at the moment are, are infrastructure, sorry, are um, broadband infrastructure. So so there's um i think the pandemic has really brought into sharp belief how important broadband infrastructure is and you know, lots of, of, of users customers are looking to uh, expand that and um you know to, to 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 get more um resilience around that um but but also um you know that, that's also been driven by content as well and the desire telcos to own and deliver more content over their services again to help to recoup the, the, the huge investments to be made in infrastructure. So, so I think you know, the, those are the main drivers, and I think telco is fairly insulated from from, from the economic pressures a lot of other industries are feeling because uh, it, 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 at the end of the day, it, it's it's a critical piece of infrastructure. Thank you. And what are your plans for investment in the business? Well, we, we invest um, a lot in R&D. So I think, as Andrew pointed out, about, about 10,000 man days a year goes into R&D to continually develop the product, expand its footprint, uh, you know, deepen out some in some of the other areas. So done a lot of work in the last year on, on building more B2B features into the product, um, such that, for example, some of our customers can opt to not use Salesforce for campaign management or similar tools so that they can do all that within Cerulean. Um, and that's proved successful. So, so um, a lot of investment in in the product, but also in building other bases where we can hire people, uh, and, and in sales where we're, we're, we're trying to you know, gradually expand our, our, our global reach by by adding more representative 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 uh, operations in different parts of the world. Great, thank you. And can you talk a little bit more about the new business pipeline and what the visibility is like? Um, I can't say too much, unfortunately, within the within the um, you know um, FCA <laughs> restrictions. But, but uh, there, there's a there's a broad range of deals in the pipeline. Um, what we've seen is a trend towards bigger deals. So, you know, in in that pipeline, there there are probably more deals in the ten to twenty million pound range and the the naught to ten million pound range. Um, 
And it's across quite a broad range of different types of telco, as is characteristic of, of a, the customer base we have to date. So um, it, it's across a broad range of, of everything from traditional um, network operators to some of these alternative uh, telcos based on energy businesses or whatever. Um, but it, it, it's the strongest the pipeline's ever been, and uh, I think that's that's very positive. Thank you very much. And what are your top three customers by revenue, if you can say, or what percentage um, of revenue are your top three customers? We, we, I'm afraid we, we haven't disclosed that, unfortunately, so we're not able to just to, 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 tell, to tell you that, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. What I can say, which may be more helpful, um, is that the the top the top three customers in terms of revenue are hardly ever the same in each year because the because of the way you recognize revenue so if you, if you imagine that if we sign a, a large new customer deal in the year that we deliver that that solution we're recognizing millions of dollars worth of services plus millions of dollars worth of term license fees for the whole period of the, the whole term um so inevitably those customers, those big new customers in implementation are going to be the highest revenue earning customers in that year. But once those customers are then into the normal operations where we're doing, providing essentially the, 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 the services side of the, the, the ongoing recurring services side of the SaaS deal, um, they're, they're much lower as a proportion of revenue than the next new customers in the middle of being implemented. So we tend to see customers be in the top five or 10 when they come into, when we first win them and then they'll drop out. And then when something major new happens, they'll, they might come back in. There's a constant cycling of, 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 um, of, of customers into the, the, the top five and the top 10 category. That, that means that revenue concentration, although any one year, it can be relatively high. It's not, a, a, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's not a, a, a consistent feature that any one customer is dependent on any one customer for the bulk of our revenue or anything like that. So I hope that helps in terms of answering that question. And um, foreign exchange has gone in your favour for the period. Are you expecting that to continue to work in your favour going forward? Yeah. So I mean, we had a we had a small impact from foreign exchange um, in the first half. Um, actually, if you look at the average rates in the first half of 22 versus the first half of 21, um, the rates didn't really move that much in terms of the average rates on the P&L. Um, there was a bit of a change in terms of the, the balance sheet revaluations at the end of the period. We did get some favourable impact from that uh, coming through OPEX in the first half of this year versus an unfavourable movement um, in the first half of last year. Um, clearly, we report in pounds and, um, you know, looking at the breakdown of our customers do earn uh, some, some, you know, some percentage of our revenue in US dollars. So given the strengthening of the US dollar, um, so if the, if the dollar remains at this level through to the end of the year, we would expect some benefit um, versus last year. That's great. Thank you very much. And looking at operating costs, what do you think you can keep operating cost growth at if revenues are growing at 20% per annum? I mean, clearly in the second half of the year, we would expect there to be uh, some additional headwinds from operating costs. Uh, so as Louis talked about before, inflation is is a big, a, a big deal for us given our our exposure to headcount costs. 
Um, we expect operating costs to increase in the second half because of because of inflation. Um, on top of that, we would expect travel costs to increase as well, um, as well as the impact from higher uh, national um, national insurance from an employer's perspective, which came into force from the first of April. So, so overall, you know, we would expect operating costs to be higher in the second half versus the first half. Um, in terms of an exact growth, um, you know, I don't think we can give an exact number, um, but we would we would expect it to increase. Thank you very much. And back orders seem to have actually dropped to 39.7 versus half one um, when they were 42.1. So that's obviously slightly disappointing and you did refer to it. But do you expect this back order book to grow in half two? Yeah, that's the point I was making earlier on. So back order has only fallen very slightly. If you look at at the the drop in total new orders, that drop from 23.1 to 10.9 10.9 million um, because we don't have any new customer, big new customer wins in that half. So if we were to win you know, a, a new customer or two new customers whatever, in the second half, then you would see um, a, a, an increase in that number in the financial year compared to the previous financial year. And that would obviously push up back order quite a bit. So, so our expectation is that back order will increase. It will be higher at the end of financial year in, in September than, than it was at both at the end of last financial year and at the end of the six months to the, the, the first half of last financial year. Thank you. And um, again, on the order book, um, you've got good visibility of revenues one year out, but how about any longer, say two years plus? Yeah, well, obviously our recurring revenue is, is baked in and the fact that that's growing steadily and uh, quite rapidly now. It is obviously positive, so that 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 always gives us a head start at the beginning of it, each financial year. Uh, we think recurring revenue will will keep on will, will grow as a percentage of overall revenue, and as that as, as more and more revenue is recurring, then obviously start of each year is is easier than the previous year and so on. Um, so so also we have some um, longer term implementations that we know will run on into twenty three. Uh, and some even into 24. So, so we don't have 100% visibility, but I think um, by the time we get to the end of this financial year, we should have sufficient orders to give us a lot of confidence about 2023 and, 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 and probably um, a lot of 24. The, the important thing about winning these newer, larger customers is that they deliver much larger upselling, you know, onward sales to existing customer base. And, and that does make it easier to keep the growth engine going at that rate. Sorry, Andrew. No, I was just going to say also in terms of the recurring revenue numbers that we that we show, uh, that doesn't include the benefit from term license renewals. So the typical term license deal that we sign is, is over five years. Uh, so when that comes to an end, we, we would expect to get a benefit from the term licenses, but that isn't included in the recurring revenue numbers that we that we show so that that is upside very good point thank you and are you able to give an idea of your market share um that's a good question it, it, it's a very fragmented market there is no dominant player um we we we, we, we look at market share every now and again but it's very hard to come up with a conclusive number um but it, it, it it's very it's small um which from our point of view is a is a big benefit because you know for us to grow significantly we don't need to capture um a, a, a particularly large market share 
but you're in terms of our addressable market, we're probably looking in in you know one two percent type territory, maybe a little bit more, but it it it, it it's small. Thank you very much. And with the strong balance sheet and cash flow, can you comment on capital allocation, for example, between investing in the business, acquisitions, share buybacks, special dividends, and the dividend policy payout ratio? So the, the, our policy on, on dividends payouts is, is a third to a half of free cash flow. Um, we increased it by, I think, 25%, 24%, Andrew, this, this time around. Um, 24%, uh, reflecting the, the big uptick we've had in, in free cash flow. Uh, we, we're quite cautious about that. We, 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 we're, we're probably at the lower end of our, our range in terms of dividend payouts, but we're obviously um, it's very hard to ever go backwards with dividend payouts. So we wanted to do something which um, wouldn't make it impossible to keep that, that trend going. Um, in, in terms of... In terms of um, Allocation to M and A. I mean, we, we M and A is part of our strategy, and we we do look at companies all the time with a view to adding businesses that have product modules that would sit around our our stack that we could that we would enable us to bring on board customer bases that we could upsell into with our existing products, and and also uh, bring on product from a, a business that we could sell upsell to our existing customers or existing customers, if you like. Um, and so that that's very much part of our strategy. Um, I think. Valuations have been quite high over the last couple of years, so we've, we've struggled to find the right business at the right price. I think going forward, companies with strong balance sheets like ours will be able to find deals to be done uh, more easily than they have been for the last couple of years. Um, share buy, buyback, we, we, we do buy back shares uh, occasionally to support our incentive schemes, so um, the LTIP for the management team and the savings you earn schemes for the rest of the staff, um, we, we do rather than missing new equity because we've got strong cash balances, we do uh, go into markets by shares to satisfy those. Um, so, probably expect that to continue, although it's not a huge amount of um, with, with relatively small amounts of, of, of cash. Um, yeah, so I think, I think that's, um, I think that covers the, that question. Tremendous. Thank you very much. And we've got a final question. Um, so you, Louis, and VCs own nearly half the equity. Presumably, there are no remaining locking commitments post the float a few years ago. Can you comment on that? Well, first of all, um, it, there are no VCs in this. So, so the, I think we're talking about uh, Gresham House and, um, and Canaccord, who own between, between myself, Gresham and Canaccord, it's about, it is about half. But those are those are um, funds. They're, they're not um, they're not uh, VCs uh, or private equity. Um, there are the, yeah, the, that's correct. I don't think I'm, I'm speaking out of turn by saying there are no lock-ins. Um, the question has also just um, added that Livingbridge also have quite a large stake. Um, he believes. Yeah, no, Livingbridge is now Gresham House. Oh, that so makes sense. That, yes. Yeah. So they, they, I think they, they've still got, this is Ken Wooten has got, is it, is it is eight, I've got numbers in front of me, but yeah, 18%, 15%. 15%, sorry, yes. But I think, you know, they, they're, they're long-term investors and uh, I think they've got quite a high bar to where they will sell at. Um, it, I, I'm obviously not planning to sell equity uh, at the moment. Um, so I appreciate that does create a bit of a liquidity problem. Um, and what one of the, I mean, so, so from that point of view, 
one of the things that we would expect to address that will be if we do a, a larger acquisition, then we would we would raise some some capital through public market, and that will put more equity into the market to to help the liquidity. Um, but yes, that that uh, yeah, we appreciate that that could be a concern for some people. Thank you very much. Um, and that's the end of questions. Do you have any closing remarks, Louis? Um, just to say that, you know, just following on from that question, I mean, uh, I, I'm a very happy investor in this business and, and I think this has got a long way to go. Um, you know, we're not allowed to make forward-looking statements, obviously, but, but um, you know, I think we're at the start of, a, of the next, the next uh, stage of the journey where we have got the growth rates through a mixture of, you know, just having been around for a certain period of time, so have a certain amount of credit, credibility that, that grows as we do bigger and bigger deals. Um, you know, bigger deals breed the next biggest deal and so on. And I think we're, you know, we're, we're at a, a, a perfect storm, if you like, of, of, of positive factors in our direction, uh, both in terms of that, but in terms of competition. Uh, it's a more favorable competitive environment than, than it has been in the past. And um, there's an investment cycle in telco that's, that's fueling more and more um, spending. So you know, I, think, I think we're in a very strong place right now. PI World videos and podcasts are for general information and interest. They do not constitute any kind of recommendation or inducement to buy shares of any company. PI World is not offering any kind of financial advice and nothing in our material should be taken as such.